Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 238th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Margaret Deckand. Margaret is the CEO of Six Meridian, a hybrid RA located in Wichita, Kansas, that has $3 billion in assets under advisement serving 700 clients. What's unique about Margaret, though, is that in 2016, she and her partners broke away from a very lucrative practice at Morgan Stanley to go fully independent. And rather than use one of the popular breakaway broker support platforms, decided to launch their own firm entirely from scratch in order to build the business exactly the way they wanted. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it was that Margaret and her partners wanted to be able to offer their clients and their team members that they weren't able to accomplish within a wirehouse. The circumstances leading up to Margaret and her partners deciding to break away, including the realization that despite investing heavily into their own brand and acting as a standalone unit, all the work they were doing within the wirehouse wasn't truly their own and instead was considered Morgan Stanley work product. And the decision-making process that Margaret went through when figuring out what the business they wanted to build would actually look like, rather than simply trying to find the best recruiting offer from any number of competitors. We also talk about why Margaret and her team ultimately opted to go fully independent, divvying up the tasks amongst themselves to launch the new firm from scratch, rather than leveraging the services of a turnkey service platform provider. The tax alpha reasoning that Margaret and her partners decided to launch their own family of ETFs for their clients last year. And how Margaret's focus on reducing the number of centers of influence they sought referrals from and instead nurturing deeper relationships with just a few who are already providing referrals has helped the firm bring increasingly large and more complex clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Margaret shares some of the lessons that she's learned from being in the business for over 30 years, including the benefit of focusing her own mental energy on only the things that she can really control. Margaret's efforts towards recruiting and developing younger advisors in order to build Six Meridian into a multi-generational firm and the additional service offerings that Margaret is exploring as a way to provide even more value to her clients in the future. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Margaret Deckant. Welcome, Margaret Deckant, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and, and, and just talking about some of the ways that we we build and transition advisory firms over time. I know a couple of years ago, you you made a very big transition from the the, the world of large wirehouses into the into the independent world, and you know it's it's a trend that I think our industry talks about a lot these days. We sort of given it the aggregate label of of breakaway brokers for for those that are moving from the wirehouses to the independent world, and you know the independent world I think sort of paints this as this like tidal wave onslaught of those who are leaving. But when you actually look at the end of the day, you know, most years, like we count the number of high profile firms that leave to the independent channel, like in the dozens, and the number of firm advisors at major wirehouses is literally tens of thousands, about 50,000 across Morgan Merrill, UBS, and Wells. And so as I've always viewed it, like it, it's really at the end of the day, a little bit more of a trickle than a than a tidal wave, because I think a lot of people who choose to work in a large firm environment. They they do it for 
what large firm environments provide, right? Uh, infrastructure, support, systems, process, maybe even some some brand, resources. Like there's a lot of stuff that you get in the large firm environment. And because of that, I've long seen that even when advisors do leave large firm environments, they tend to work with service providers that help facilitate those transitions. So the Dynasty Financial Sanctuary, High Tower, other platforms that have cropped up over the past 10 years to help facilitate those transitions. And so I was really struck just in learning about and hearing your story that you you had made one of these transitions and and just kind of made, I guess as I would term it, like a a a, a grand leap, right, right from you know the 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 full wirehouse environments to the fully independent, we're just standing up our own thing and doing our own thing. And just thought like I would love to understand more of kind of the mentality and the focus and how you think about making that kind of just absolutely enormous leap to build the firm that you're building now. Okay, well, that's well put. It was an absolutely enormous leap (laughs) to build our firm, but I guess I would go back to your original comments. There are definitely benefits in the wirehouse environment. That is absolutely true. And the impetus for us to start Six Meridian was not so much to get away from the wirehouse. It was to embark upon a vision of what we had as our business. So we had built out inside of the wirehouse our own investment management platform. We had hired a number of our own personnel. We had developed our own marketing plans, et cetera. And there were just some things that we really wanted to do for our clients that that environment did not accommodate. So it was more a vision for what we wanted to become than getting away from something we didn't like, because there are certainly, as you said, great benefits to independence and also being in a, a larger platform. So so help us understand, like, I guess two things. One, maybe for advisors who've only lived on the on the independent side, just as someone who spent you know, more than a decade in the wirehouse environment before moving to independence. Like what are the what are the benefits of building in the wirehouse environment that you know that led you to build there, that led you to stay there for a very long time when you talk about the benefits of the wirehouse? Like what do you think of as those benefits? What were the the key points for you? Okay. Well the the platform is built for you, right? So you have the technology, you have the access to the investment platforms, you have access to alternative investments, basically all kinds of investment solutions for your clients. Depending upon the wirehouse, you also have access to planning software or planning resources. So there there were definitely things that were advantageous in being in that environment. It's the one-stop shop. It's a all-encompassing environment. But on the counterpart, when you go to the independent side, then you have choices you can make regarding what financial planning software you use, et cetera. So the wirehouse environment definitely has all that pre-built for you. It's a plug-and-play type of resource, and then you can pick and choose what parts of it you want to use and what parts you don't want to use. So how do you compare that to just what you're living in the in the independent side now. You know, I, I know I mean just in the aggregate, wirehouses talk about having a wide range of investment solutions. Independent platforms talk about having a wide range of investment solutions. Wirehouse firms talking about having fully integrated technology. Independent firms are increasingly saying, oh, you know, you can integrate all the technology to each other so we can do that too. Just you've now lived both sides. I mean, is is 
are these fair comparisons? Are these not fair comparisons? Like, how does it really stack up when you talk about investment platforms or integrated technology platforms between what it was like in the wirehouse world and what it's like in the independent world? Yeah, well, um, great question. And as I mentioned, you know, in the wirehouse environment, as we all know, it's it's already built for you. It's plug and play. You don't have to really decide whether you're going to go right or whether you're going to go left. The independent world gives you an open architecture, which is just exactly that. So you choose your CRM, you choose your performance reporting software, you choose your custodian, you choose your friendly broker dealer if you have a need for one. So you get to build your business based upon what you believe to be the best of class for what you want to do for your clientele. So there are advantages to that if you want to do something above and beyond what a plug and play type of environment offers to you. And in our case, I would say there were things that we wanted to do on the investment management side that we could not do in the wirehouse environment. And rightfully so, that's limited because they have 18 to 20,000 advisors and they can't have 18 to 20,000 advisors doing different things. And also we wanted to do more on the wealth management side. So that was also a little bit limited to whatever was there for us. So, and I would tell you now, five years removed from that decision, we've delivered on those types of commitments to our team and to our clients above and beyond what we ever thought we could do. Interesting. I I do think there's an interesting dynamic when you just talk about the you know the the open architecture nature and the choices in in the independent channel that just I I find there's there's sort of two there's two ways that people approach having just a, a huge range of choices. You know, one is like I can't believe how many choices there are. I, you know, right? We have so much to choose from, and then the second is like I can't believe how many choices there are. <laughs> It's like any anybody who's ever like built a home has experienced this. And like it sounds really cool when you can build the home however you want it, but then when you're on like the seventh hour of picking like which color doorknobs and cabinet handles you're gonna have, it's like okay, I wanted choice, but like maybe I actually didn't want this much choice. And and there's no right or wrong answer around that. I think it it really is just sort of a a difference in mentalities and approaches like some of us are just wired that we want a whole lot of choices and be able to pick and choose amongst them and for others it's like oh my lord i'm just feeling overwhelmed like will someone just show me a thing that's reasonable to you so i can get on with other stuff i would enjoy doing more than spending the seventh hour picking the doorknobs and and so i'm just i'm i'm struck by that distinction and that you know as, as you've noted like you wanted to do things that are different than the plug and play environment, which meant you had to end out on the independent side because that's that's where the the choices framework becomes a necessity to build the thing you want to build if it doesn't fit the standardized environment that you're in to begin with. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So so what was it I just in practice, like you talked about you wanted to do more on the investment side than the wirehouse would allow you wanted to do more on the wealth management side. What, did, what does that mean in in practice? Like, what were you actually looking to do, or what did you go and create as you as you went out on your own? Well, as a couple of examples on the investment management side, uh, we had a covered call option strategy that we wanted to continue to build out, and that was a bit restricted in the warehouse environment. So that was one thing that we wanted to do. But since then, we've not only enhanced that strategy 
we've also built out a couple of other equity investment management strategies. And last May, in May 2020, we converted those managed portfolios into ETFs. So the six Meridian exchange traded funds are now traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And that was something obviously we never could have done within a wirehouse environment. And the reason we did that is really client driven, right? We wanted to make our investment strategies and our management process much more tax efficient for our clients. And that ETF wrapper gave us the ability to do exactly that for our clients. We also have developed a couple of alternative investment strategies along with a partner in the market. And that would not have been something we could have sketched out before we became Six Meridian. So in what de- what was a vision for let's do more innovative investment solutions, let's bring more innovation to our clients has really been, as I mentioned before, exponentially a larger opportunity than we even thought it could be. And on the wealth management side, we have wanted we wanted to be able to take deeper dives into our client lives. We really wanted to make it a, a link arms with our clients and make it a experience for them where we got to know their true concerns and what they wanted for their families. And we've been able to go out and choose the software and market it as compass underneath our six Meridian flag. And more importantly, even than that, is we've been able to add the personnel that we want and that we need and the expertise that we want and we need to our team to be able to do those things for our clients. So those would be a couple of examples of where we've really been able to crystallize and deliver on the vision that we had when we initially launched our firm. So help me understand on the on the wealth management side, just you know, when you talk about things like taking deeper dives into clients' lives, I mean, I find mo- most of us in the advisor world, no matter where we are, at least like to say, like, you know, we're, we're comprehensive, holistic, and we give you, you know, financial planning advice in all the different areas of your financial life. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering just in practice, like what, what's the difference between what you're doing now and, and what you're doing, what you were doing before? I mean, is it a, is it a service difference? Is it a staffing difference? Is it like particular technology that you're using that you couldn't use before that makes it happen better? Like what what actually changed in going to the independent world? It's actually really all three of those. So we structured our service model so that we could allow for more capacity, more time to spend with clients in getting to know their financial situation. Secondly, we did we've added to our team expertise and capacity uh, to be able to spend time with our clients. And lastly, we did change the financial planning software that we used initially because when we left the wirehouse, we took on the same software that we had used in the wirehouse just because it was familiar. It was going to be able for, you know, we all know how to use it, et cetera. But since then, we've moved on to another platform that allows us to do more detailed plans to have better visuals to communicate with our clients and really have those deeper discussions. So it was really all three of those we were able to do in under our own umbrella. And so is this just a wirehouse infrastructure limitation that you you could not hire more advisors, more expertise, more team members in the wirehouse environment that you you had to be in a separate world just to be allowed to do that kind of hiring? 
to some degree. Now I'm I'm talking about five years ago, so I'm going to preface and say maybe things have changed since then, right? So <laughs> things don't stay the same. So I'm just going on my vernacular from when I was we were making these decisions, and you know we were able to bring on talented people as we needed them and as we found them, and. Again, back in my experience, it was you had to prove that you needed the resource. You had to find a way to slot them in. You had to put them in a title or a role that was sort of preordained by the wirehouse model. So it's it's allowed us to bring on people in a way in meaningful roles and give them responsibilities that we deemed necessary to service our clients. And so is that just a difference around just just priorities and time horizon of you know, the the firm really didn't want you to have a lot of hires unless you could show directly that they're going to go out and get new clients and when you say hey no we want to have you know, deeper expertise on the team but it's overhead you can make that decision if it's your business when you're in that environment it wasn't always easy to make the case over well margaret why don't you just go hire another another advisor to bring in more clients right that's that's well said and you know one of my personal platforms and we as a business, a priority has been to bring young, talented people into this business. And we've been able to give them the opportunity to take the time to learn, take the time to learn how to deal with clients, how to use the financial planning software, really learn how to be an advisor without them having to meet certain metrics along the way, right? And that's a choice we've made because we wanted to have a deep bench of younger, talented professionals that could help service our clients for the next who knows how long. And we've been very successful in attracting very talented people who I believe are very happy and very fulfilled with the work that they are doing. And it wouldn't have been as easy or maybe as time efficient Let's just say that as it was as it was under our own roof. And then you you changed software as well. So I'm I'm curious, like what what were you using, and then what did you go to? Well, we had been using MoneyGuide Pro platform, which is a great platform and continues to evolve. We made a shift to eMoney back in fall of 2019 because again at that time, which things change every day, at that time we felt like that software gives gave us the ability to do a bit deeper dive. That may they are may be more peer-to-peer now, looking at it two years later, but at the time we were able to shift over to a new software platform that we believe gave us more options and more detail for the type of client that we're dealing with. So the kind of the the level of cash flow detail in e-money was was more appealing for your clientele than the the more goals-based high-level framework for money guide. Yes. And you know there's there are different tax scenarios you can utilize estate planning graphics and visuals that you can use. So in our mind it was just a good choice at the time. And and so I'd love to hear more about on the investment end. You said you you went you went so far as creating your own ETFs. And you know, I, I know a lot of advisory firms have you know, created their own in investment approaches, their own strategies, their own models. There's various software tools out there to, to help do that. Making your own ETFs is sort of another level of that, though. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about uh, like how, to, how did the idea come about? What led you to decide to do it as ETFs? And, and then just 
literally how how does that actually happen like how do you how do, you do that but <laughs> but let's let's just start at the at the high level like why why create your own ETFs right we've already got all this cool technology that we can mix and match and buy and sell a whole lot of stuff so why go create your own ETFs well it was very much client driven this was you know, when we would rebalance our strategies and our portfolios, obviously there would be tax implications to clients. And in some time periods, that could be pretty significant. So we we sought out to research how could we have a little bit more control over the tax implications for clients as we were able to effectively manage our strategies. And our investment management team did a lot of research around is that a mutual fund? Is that an ETF? Is that changing how we rebalance our portfolios? It was, you know, 18 months of a lot of research on their part. So I give them all the credit in the world for really crossing all the T's to find out what the best solution was. And as all after all the conclusions were drawn, it was really that ETF, an ETF wrapper allows us to rebalance as much as we need to, according to our models. And until the client actually sells the ETF, there is no tax implication there. Now, how that came about is we understand our strengths and our not so much strengths. So (laughs) we sought out the best partner in the business that could walk alongside us and help us get this accomplished. So we partnered with ETC, a firm that is very experienced at this type of work and from what I understand, the best in the business. So they helped us walk through all the legal legal side of it, the SEC compliance side of it, all of the, the moving parts that had to happen before we could actually launch our ETF. So I just put in a very, very short summary of what was a very long and detailed process. But at the end of the day, particularly in the market we're in today, where, you know, since last March, the market has moved significantly, to say the least, and we've needed to rebalance our portfolios on a number of occasions. And because of these ETF wrappers, we've not had to incur tax consequences to our client. I would say just because of all the the internal swapping and moving rules of of ETFs that as you're, as you're, making the changes in and out of the vehicle, you're not triggering, you're typically not triggering gains and pass-throughs because of how you can manage the underlying ETF. That's correct. Yes. Yes. So, and this was really just driven to benefit our clients. We have no grandiose notions that six Meridian ETFs are going to be traded around the globe by any stretch of the imagination, but this was really something we wanted to do to bring innovation and to our clients and also, of course, have a tax-effective vehicle for them. And and so in in building this out with with exchange traded concepts, like what what does it take to to do this? Like how 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 long does it take to launch it? What did what did you actually have to do to make it happen? Well, it was about a I'd say a year of planning and understanding all of the logistics that go into it. The actual day that these were initially one, our first ETF was traded. It had to be carefully orchestrated because there had to be a, a sale of the securities and a replace, you know, the securities had to be delivered on the other side from ETC. So the logistics were pretty complex. So 
And you are basically feeding existing client holdings and portfolios into it to do the initial creation process? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Right. So we seeded those four initial exchange traded funds with about just shy of a half a billion dollars in client assets. So we had the volume behind it to be able to make this economically feasible and also logistically feasible. And and then going forward, just your the revenue for the firm now is the expense ratio from the ETF instead of the traditional advisory fee from the firm. You can like make them the same fee, just build a different way? Or do you actually like layer it where there's some of each? No, it all looks the same for the client. The fee they pay us is exactly the same as it would have been for an actively managed strategy. So we didn't want to make it an economic burden for our clients if they chose the ETF structure. So it's all on a level playing field for them. Although I guess in in that context, if the advisory fee actually comes out as an internal expense ratio of the ETF, that also effectively applies it on a pre-tax basis. So you get a little better tax treatment for advisory fees for clients because it just nets against the income before the ETF distributes any income. So so what is it like what does it cost and take to stand up for a series of four ETFs as an independent advisory firm? Oh this what did what was the seed capital that we had to put up? Is that what you're asking? No, like what what's the ex- What's the expense for the firm? I mean, it's like, is, is this like, does it, you know, cost you a million dollars to stand up your own ETF? Does it cost you like $10,000 because they've made all these things super fancy and efficient? Like just what kind of investment, what does it take from the firm as a, as a cost if you want to actually launch your own, your own ETFs? Well, initially we had to fund a lot of expenses, you know, the attorneys and ETC and whatnot. So the, and I'm going to work off my memory here. It was about um, 150 to 200,000 that we needed to make sure that we covered. This was made easier, of course, by knowing that if we were going to be able to see the launch of these ETFs with the amount of money that we did, we did the math on how long it would take to recoup those expenses. So we did fund the seed capital from partner contribution, but you know, knowing that this was going to be in our mind, a very successful venture for our clients. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, in- interesting. So, and and so as you go forward now, just because I'm always wondering what it what it's like from the client's end when you know they go from you know they, they used to see your like your managed account with you know however many you know dozen or dozen of positions that were in there, and I'm just like, here's their statement. It's like a hundred percent in in one ETF. Like the ETFs are highly diversified with all the things that you own, but do you see any differences in interacting with clients when they go from, you know, a giant list of things that you're managing to like you're in the ETF. I mean the ETF has all the things, but their statement might only have one line item now. <laughs> Which to some of them that's really a great benefit. <laughs> they yeah, the the 90 page statement was not a thing they enjoyed. But we were very diligent and careful to explain all of that, right? I mean, this is going to look very different to you. You know, for, there are clients, of course, who do like to see exactly the stocks that they own and that take that deep dive into their statement. So we wanted to make sure they understood that although those holdings are still there, that's you won't see them. And uh, we do have on our ETF page, we have a link that 
shows all of the holdings that uh, are in the respective ETFs. And for some clients, we still take the holdings and we, you know, tell them that this is what the portfolio holds and this is what went out and this is what went in during the last rebalance. So we work to provide as much detail as makes continues to make our clients comfortable. And it was not a mandatory move into the ETFs. If the client wanted to keep the managed strategy, then that was completely up to them. Okay. Okay. And so just, but, but I guess the, the, the pitch or the offer or the appeal or just why you were going down the road in the first place is, Hey, but we are continuing to manage and trade and rebalance your strategies that, that will trigger some, some tax consequences. If we do this in the ETF wrapper, if you transition to the ETF wrapper, you know, you could, you can minimize some of these ongoing tax consequences. Yes, that's correct. I mean, you you need to disclose all of the details around both the managed portfolio and the ETF, right? I mean, ultimately the client's decision. Is there a tax-free exchange version for actually, for as clients contributed in, or did some clients have to deal with tax consequences to essentially sell their stocks and transition into the ETFs? There were some tax consequences, but again, we made sure that they were, they, we disclosed all of that to the clients and they understood the implications and what was going to happen. Right. And just that's part of the trade off for getting what's better treatment on the other side. I, I would presume as well that means in practice, these also tend to be things that you have more in client taxable accounts and not necessarily in retirement accounts because you didn't have the same tax consequences or the tax issues in retirement accounts in the first place? Generally speaking, that's correct. Yes. Interesting. So as you as you look back on it now, like how are you how are you feeling about ETF versus managed account structures now that you've actually lived it? Is this so like so glad we did it or looking back like, okay, we did it, we're moving forward, but I don't know if I would have done that again from scratch given what we know now. Oh no, we would completely do that again. Uh, absolutely. And Part of that is emphasized by what's happened in the market since last May when we did this. So, um, you know, our small cap strategy uh, was rebalanced in earlier this year. I don't remember what month. And almost 100% of the positions were rotated out. So that would have been a significant, and that's just one example, that would have been a significant tax impact for our clients. So, it's been very beneficial for them along the way. And obviously then and makes clear in the context of like why transition independence, not a lot of employee advisors at a wirehouse that get to create their own ETFs for their individual client base. And so the idea in essence was just anything that you were previously running as a model strategy, you now run as a centralized model in an ETF and the clients by the ETF. We still have a couple of strategies that we did not convert, and that's just because they're these four strategies were held stock positions. The other ones have mutual fund ETFs, et cetera. So, uh, but our equity strategies are now under have an ETF option. Oh, so you you were doing these primarily with things that were previously individual stocks, because just more traded, more caught tax consequences for the trades. You're not necessarily adding a a layer of cost of like rolling up funds inside of funds inside of funds. It's just, hey, we're taking our direct stocks and putting a wrapper around it that's the same cost as what our advisory fee would have been, but we get better tax treatment when we make the changes within the wrapper. So help us understand then the the just the overall size and scope of 
of the advisory business? Like how big is the firm? How many clients? How many team members? Like paint the picture for us of, of what Six Meridian is. Okay. Today we are, we have 3 billion assets under custody. So the majority of that's under management, but we do have some assets that are sit under custody for our clients. We, since we've launched Six Meridian, we've gone from 13 total, including the partners to now 24 personnel under a roof. Clients, we have about 700 households that we service and we do you know, we're, we're not a family office set up, but we do uh, wealth planning and investment management for, for those 700 households. Okay. And, and so what is the, the 24 people uh, kind of breakdown? Like who, who does what, or how do you, how do you structure the team internally? Since I know you've got, you've got advisory services, you've got deep uh, investment team work that you're doing. So what's the, can you, Paint the picture of what that org chart looks like of, of kind of how 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 the team breaks out. Yeah, we have we have an investment management team who's led by our chief investment officer Andrew Meese, and he has a staff a team of four who work with him on the liquid and illiquid side of things. Then we have the uh, advisor side, and it includes the partners, five of the partners who are also have client facing responsibilities. So there are eleven total client-facing advisors. And then we have a support team, a service team of four. You know, they're the, they're the engine that keeps us running. They're, they do all of our client service. They do a great job taking care of our clients on day-to-day type of requests and needs. And then we have uh, operations, a chief operating officer with a dedicated technology expert and we have someone who manages our office and then we have chief mar- chief marketing officer so those are the pillars of the business very cool very cool and so i just as with a lot of firms you know almost half the total headcount is is simply ad- advisors out to clients directly how, how do you i guess just manage or structure client service are you uh a team type of environment where every client has two or three advisors in the room, or are you, uh, you know, individuals each has their their own client base that they're lead on. How does that work, just for all the different advisors and the clients that they're servicing? Yeah, no, we're all everyone works under the same umbrella, so we do not have individual advisors. Um, for each client, we make sure that there is a lead advisor and then a co advisor. So at all times, there's someone available for the client and then they have a dedicated service team member who also works with them. Okay. So the, the kind of the core for a group of clients is basically three people, like a lead advisor, a co-advisor and a dedicated service team member. I guess service team members are generally supporting two advisor teams at a time, just kind of given the math, 11 advisors for service team members. Right. And and typical clients. So I just I'm I'm sort of doing the the napkin math of just three billion of assets under management and and seven hundred clients. You put puts you at at a you know four to five million dollar average client household. Is that a good representation of where you are for typical clients? Obviously. Some bigger, some smaller. Is right. The yeah. The math average. always works. <laughs> yes, it's always the way it works. Yeah. Uh, the average would be around 5 million uh, under management 
obviously, as you said, some bigger, some smaller, but that's, that's kind of our sweet spot. And, and so when a client is a client of the firm, what does that experience look like for them in practice? I mean, what do they, what do you do? What kind of, what, what do they get when they are a client of Six Meridian through the year? Well, when we onboard a new client, uh, we always start with the the wealth plan. So it's uh, a big picture look at their financial life, oftentimes looking at all the investments, but also looking at, you know, what is really important to you and your family. So there we start with the plan. And then from the plan that helps us look at how does their portfolio need to be allocated to get where they want to be. So as we say, the, the investment management side of it, or they are the tools to help them get to the solutions that they want to achieve. And then we make sure that the clients on board in and very kind of reinforce the buying decision, so to speak. So we want to make sure that they're very comfortable with our website, with our statements, with our online access, with the performance reporting that we're going to be providing to them. So there's a, a bit of an onboarding touch point that takes place to make sure they're comfortable and that we've gotten them all gotten all their questions answered. So from there, you know, it depends on the client, right? They're all different. Oftentimes, you know, we meet with clients start out saying, we'll meet with you as often as you like, whether that's two times a year, four times a year. But as we all know, oftentimes four times a year turns into more like two because (laughs) the quarters go by so quickly. But more importantly, and how often we see them is how we keep track of their financial lives, right? So we just want to make sure that we're championing all the things that they need to have done to make sure that they have all their financial T's crossed, whether that's, you know, have they talked with their CPA about their current tax situation, their quarterly payments? Have they, we have we gotten with the estate attorney to make sure that we understand the estate, the estate plan? Do we have their beneficiaries correct? All of those things that, you know, it's difficult as a client to keep track of all those things. And we can t- consider that our job to be that I don't want to use the quarterback word quarterback because I think it's overused, but to be the person, the group that has their arms around everything that's going on in their financial life. As, as you know, Michael, I mean, what we see in our clients as we continue to grow up with them is the money at some point is almost the least of their concern. It's more about their family. What's going to happen when I'm not here anymore? You know, what, how is my legacy or my values going to be translated on to my family and my community? So those are the things that we really want to make sure we understand about our clients and what they're trying to accomplish. So, so for a client that comes on board, walk me through what the, the process looks like. You know, if I, I say like, Margaret, this stuff sounds great. I, I, want to, I want to be a client of Six Meridian. You know, sign me up. Let's get going. What happens? Just how how does your process work for a new client that's starting and you know as a investment process and applying process and operations and onboarding? Right, there's a lot of stuff there. So what it what is that process for your firm when someone says sign me up? I, w- I want to work with the firm. Okay, well, we need to know a couple things about you and your family. You know, the profile sheet to know your client. So of course we take that information, but it's all done by DocuSign now. So thankfully, we're our technology allows us to. Uh, if you want paper, we'll let you sign it in paper. If you want it to electronically, we'll send it to you electronically. So there's that very basic get to know basic information that we need. We send you that to sign. Uh, we gather the information, we send you that to sign, you sign the account opening documents, and boom, you're a client. 
then you would meet your you would meet your advisor team, you would meet your service team, and we would get you comfortable with the website, the logins, et cetera. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So it, so so in, in meeting advisor team, service team, is that just actually like there's a standalone meeting that is just meet meet your people that are you going to be working with you? Or do you, you know, like send people little intros or little videos to watch? Like how do you how do you get them introduced to who your advisor team and service team is? Well, admittedly, that changed a little bit last year. It was done virtually, but so, so what, what was it pre-pandemic? At least, how, how did it traditionally work? Typically, by the, if they're, it was it's not as easy as you just described it. But by then, they know they've already met the advisor team that they're going to be with, and we do like for them to be personally introduced to the every whoever. If they're coming in the office, we would introduce them to Tracy, who runs the office and sits. She's basically the first face people see in our organization when they come in the door we walk them around and introduce them to the team so but at the very least they've met their advisor team and their service uh, person that's they're going to be talking to so that's kind of the baseline of what we want them to be who they want to, them to be comfortable with when they are becoming a client okay and and then what what comes next as they're getting as they're getting started and and onboarded so you know i i did my initial advisory agreement i've i've met the team what's the next meeting or what what comes up for me in the process here well since you already you fast forwarded us to this point we would back up and would sit down and talk about them and their family and their plan and what's important to them and then from that would build an allocation and financial solutions that fit that allocation. Okay. So as you've grown just to this very sizable $3 billion of, of assets under custody. So where does new business come from? I mean, that's a, it's a very big number of, of some very affluent folks. So like, where does new client opportunities come for you? How have you how have you been able to build and attract clients this way? Most of us have grown up in this community in this area. So, and what's the area for you? Just where are well, you based for people? We are, we are in we are in Wichita, Kansas, and most of our clients are here. But we have clients around the country, most of them with roots here, though, or some connection to a family that we already do business with. So the majority of our business comes from referrals from existing clients. And if you look at our client base, it's basically new business owners, former business owners, executives, or medical professionals. So when the work that we do for these people, with these people, they are, many are very generous in sending us referrals of their friends, their family, et cetera. Secondly, we have, because we've been in this community a long time and we enjoy a great reputation, at least we think we do, we believe we do, we're pretty, we have a, we're pretty well connected with some key centers of influence. And Mike, what we did a couple of years ago was we looked at who are, where are referrals coming from when it comes from, you know, from the, the centers of influence, meaning attorneys, CPAs, et cetera. Where are referrals coming from? And let's really focus on that handful of professionals who know us and have sent us referrals and that we're really truly partnering with. And so instead of trying to cast a wide net 
with the professionals in our area, we've really honed in on a handful of CPAs and attorneys, and we want them to know our business inside and out. So we give them updates on the ETF strategies, the you know, what we're doing on the financial planning side, if they've referred us a client, we sit down with them and go walk through their financial plan with the CPA so they can see what we're showing the client. We've really worked to lock arms with them and partner solidly with a few key referral sources. And it's one of the best decisions we've ever made. And I know it's probably not anything revolutionary that no one else has thought of by any stretch of the imagination, but I would tell you just from our perspective, it has elevated the level of referral that we get from them because they understand how much work we put into a client and they understand where we can do our best work for what clients. So it's not only increased the number of referrals, but it's also increased, say, the the client quality of the client, you know, the, the complexity of the client that we're seeing. Interesting. And so just a, a conscious strategic shift to say, we're not going to try to generate a whole bunch of referrals from a whole bunch of, of centers of influence. We're going to try to generate focused referrals from a much smaller number. And we're going to get really, really deep with them and, and really show them what we do. That's correct. And so is there a particular focus of Doing this with attorneys, doing this with CPAs. There, you know, there's some firms, some firms with other COI types as well. Like, what, what have the COIs been for you? The centers of influence been that that are connecting the best and practiced. It's really it's three or four CPAs and three or four attorneys. So we haven't gone beyond that. But those are those are the ones that we've really focused on the last few years. Are they of a particular type or focus? Like, how did you? pick or find them in the first place? Well, the first thing is that we have a lot of, a number of common clients with them. So they're familiar with what we do and how we do it. And they, the attorneys are estate planning attorneys largely. And the CPAs are people, are CPAs who have the expertise in business accounting. So they're, they're doing the, the accounting work for the client and their business typically. So oftentimes, uh, you know, that has led to a liquidity event, the business changes hands, whatever the case may be. Okay. So just gets you close to people that have some dollars or may have money in motion when you're literally working with estate planning attorneys who deal with people fasting away where money may be in motion or CPAs who are focused on business accounting in particular. So they have small business owners of a particular size who may have sales or liquidity events at some point. Correct. Yep. And so what do you do just to to get deeper in the relationship with them? You know, as, as I'm sure you've seen as well, a lot of advisors say they have relationships with centers of influence and try to connect with them, but aren't necessarily getting the growth that powers a $3 billion firm. So what, what, what are you doing in this relationship building process with centers of influence that you think is is driving such results in practice? Primarily, it was the focus to make sure they understood what it is we do for clients so that they just the question you asked me a little bit ago is what's the experience right what exactly is it that you're doing what does the client see from you so we wanted to make sure that they do understand just that like 
what is the what is a, what is the fine what does the wealth plan look like? What is how are you showing the the estate plan visually to a the, the estate plan that I wrote for the client? How are you showing it to them visually in your planning software? And why does that matter? And from the CPA side, you know we do that as well, but we also do a lot of handholding during tax season. We want to make sure that the CPA, neither the CPA or the client have to ask for anything. We want to make sure we have that, all of the taxable tax documents to them as quickly as we can get to them. So it's a combination of, I'd say if I narrowed it down as I'm talking, is making sure that they understand the experience and what it is that differentiates the Six Marine experience from any other place they could send it to. We want them to have confidence in us that we're not going to drop the ball because you and I both know if you refer some, a friend to someone and it's not the experience that they expected, that's not, that doesn't bode well, right? And then, you know, we just want to make sure that they're, we make their lives as easy as possible. So CPAs are busy during tax time. If we can help take something off their desk, then hopefully we're adding value to them and the client. And, and so as you go down this road of trying to make sure they understand the experience and what it's like, how do you do that? I mean, are you, are you explaining it? Are you like, taking them through a mock process? Do you actually try to get them as clients and like have them experience it because you did it for them and then they, and then they know? How do you actually get them to really understand what you do and how, how and why your you know, depth of service is different than others? Yeah. We have gotten a couple to be clients, so that's always great, right? Really, if to look at the experience, it's more, you know, what is the what is the client seeing in the wealth planning? You know, what is what kind of information are you gathering? How deep are you going into their financial life? And then also so that they're familiar with our performance reporting tools and how we can aggregate information for clients, you know, some of the services we can do. So I we don't go through the onboarding experience, so to speak, but it's more what is the client going to have? What what resources are we bringing to the table for them when it comes to the wealth planning software and the detail that we go into when we talk to them about their wealth plan? What is what are the, what changes have undergone and what, what changes have the investment portfolios undergone and how are you approaching managing these liquid and illiquid assets? So just so they have a better understanding of what it is that we're bringing to the table, if that makes sense not to experience it day to day, but more, what do you bring into the client? So, so now take me back again to just the, the transition and this change where you spent 10 to 15 years in a large wirehouse environment. And then at some point you, you decide, like, I, I think maybe I'm, we want to make a change and and go independent. So uh, I'm wondering like, what, what ultimately led to the decision that said, I, th- I think we've got to take, make a change. I mean, just you've been there for 10 plus years. Like what's, was there a catalyst or something that said like, now we just got to do this now. Mm-hmm. I can tell you exactly what it was. It was, uh, we, our chief investment officer, Andrew and I were having a call with a firm that was going to do, that does audited performance. And, we had a great call with them. They told us what we would need to do to get our, you know, our performance GIPS certified. As we were wrapping up the call, he said, well, 
you realize, of course, that when you leave, if you ever leave the wirehouse, none of this belongs to you. It's a work product, so it's you can't really translate it to being yours. So the trigger, like you would lose your, you would lose all of your investment track record for the strategies that you were building if you were building them under the, under the wirehouse environment. Yeah, that's correct. And honestly, I don't know why we hadn't thought about that prior to that particular moment, other than you just run your business and you're going day to day and you don't stop to think about those things. But when Andrew and I hung up the phone, we looked at each other and it said, all of this work, all of this investment we're making into our business, it's not ours. And and I totally get why. I mean, it's work product and you're technically an employee of an employer, so it doesn't belong to you. It's not unlike a lot of other things, but we had just never put it in that context. And that really started the wheels turning of if we're going to continue to invest in our business and want to continue to elevate our game, is this really the place we want to do it? And that started what was about an 18 month to two year exploratory process to say, what are our options? What, what does the world look like out there? <laughs> so that was the, uh, the impetus right there. So, so as you, then say, okay, we got to start figuring out what the options are. So, so tell me about that, that process or that journey. I mean, just you've, you've lived, you've lived almost 15 years in a wirehouse in that environment. So like, how did you go about finding information and what did you look at? Well, like a lot of advisors, wirehouse, not wirehouse, we would get calls from recruiters and you know, people wanting us to take a look at their platform. And I had gotten a call from a a guy that was, he was the first person that ever said, what do you want your business to be? What's your vision for it? Not, you can get a check this big by walking across the street, you know, they're paying three times that, whatever. He actually wanted to know what we wanted our business to be. And so I, we talked about it as a group and I said, you know, this is going to be a big venture, could be. So let's go find somebody who can help us get smarter. And that was the consultant that we ultimately hired to help us look at all the options outside the warehouse environment. And you can, his Mark Albers is his name. And he did, as, he's still a great friend to this day because he was really a partner for us in helping us decide what path to go down, what partners to choose. He was invaluable to us, helping us swim through water, murky water that we had no idea <laughs> what we were in for, really, because as you said, we'd been in the wirehouse environment for 15 years. So that was a big unknown world for us. Interesting. And so, and so the process with Mark was just to, to help get some perspective on like, so what are my choices out there? Like, how does this work? And, and so what did you, I mean, what did you, what did you learn? I mean, what did you hear? How did you take it in as you, as he started saying, well, here, here's how it looks on the other side of the mountain. Well, at first it was very overwhelming. As we talked earlier, you have the plug and play environment versus that open architecture, the 
seventh hour of choosing doorknobs type of situation. But he helped us really kind of go through the decision tree, right? So there are different ways you can go about this. There are quasi-independent, you know, there's the finance platform, which is kind of independent, but yet you have the chassis of Wells Fargo underneath it. There's the fully independent. And, you know, I'm not going to do all that justice, but basically he helped us kind of look at all in going on your own, all in going with a partner or maybe some sort of hybrid type of situation. And this was, like I said, months and months of talking about it. And the place we started really was the custodian. Like, you know, you're going to need a custodian, so you need to vet who those those options. So we kind of started there as the, the big first step. So who, who did you look at for custodians and, and who did you end up choosing? Uh, we looked at kind of the usual suspects. We looked at uh, Schwab, Fidelity, and Pershing. And Pershing is actually our one and only custodian. So why, why Pershing or why not Schwab and Fidelity? What, what led you to that decision? Well, at the time, again, this is six years ago, five years ago, we had under our client base, we had clients who needed access to customized credit. A pretty significant piece of our business is through with credit. At the time, Pershing and BNY Mellon were the very best solution. I mean, head and shoulders above what anyone else was able to do in that regard. Again, I'm going to qualify that to say that could have changed in the last five years. I don't know because I don't, I'm not out there looking for it, but they, the second piece of it was we really liked their people. They, they don't try to be all things to everyone and have been terrific partners for us. So when you talk about uh, just customized credit, like what, what does that mean in practice? I mean, just what are you, what are you actually doing in the, in the credit realm? Our clients may want to buy a home in Hawaii or finance a jet or buy company stock. It's kind of a litany of things. And then we just have, we have clients who want access to investment lines of credit. I mean, credit that is obviously collateralized by their investments at Six Meridian. And and so you found just Pershing, or I guess Pershing with the BNY connection has more options, more capabilities to do that kind of specialized borrowing for high net worth clients. And again, I'm going to quantify that at the qualify that at the time five years ago, six years ago, that was true. I don't, I have no idea whether or not that capability is more widespread today. But we're happy with what BNY Pershing does for us on that side. So step one was choosing RA custodian, and and you. You came to a decision on on purging. So, what was the what was the next like trigger point or decision point or thing that you were deliberating on as you went through the process? At that time, I mean, there are more options available today as far as what I want to call platform providers. I don't know that that's the best terminology, but as you mentioned, sanctuary. You know, some of those firms that we were all sort of in our infancy at that point. I mean, they. But we we looked at whether or not we wanted to have a partner or if we wanted to just go out and make these decisions on our own. And thank you know, we were fortunate because we had numbers, right? There were 13 of us. We had 
teammates who are ready, willing, and able to do the work. You know, basically you're, you're doing two jobs, right? You're doing, you, cause you can't do this while you're in Morgan Stanley in doing your Morgan Stanley work. So you have to do it outside of, the, of work hours. So we decided we were going to go ahead and just move forward on our own. We divided the labor and kind of all the decisions that needed to be made. So we had a team that worked on, you know, with Pershing, what's the investment management platform? Because we still needed access to third-party money managers and the trading platform. And what does all that look like? Then there was the CRM, you know, what do we, what kind of chassis do we want our CRM to be? Investment reporting and account aggregation. What did we want to do there? So those were the handful of decisions that we wanted to, we had to get going on fairly quickly just because there, there are a lot of, it takes a lot of time to vet all those, particularly when you're, you're not familiar with the landscape. So those were the, some of the biggest decisions that we made. And, and what did you end up choosing when it came to, to CRM and when it came to investment reporting and account aggregation? We use Adapar as our, um, investment reporting platform. And we, we, we love the customization that we're able to do with that. Again, that was kind of one of the things that we felt was important in this journey was let's give our clients a, a performance report, a deliverable that's easy to understand and tells them exactly what they want to know. So we've been very happy with Adapar. The CRM, we've, we actually have changed away from the original one that we selected and we're thrilled with the one we have today, which is Salentica. It's basically the nerve center for our team. It's how our team communicates client notes, client tasks, calendar requests, the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's just very dynamic and fits our business well. So a lot of the decisions you make beyond the custodian or technology related, just because that's client experience, right? I mean, that's the internal client experience plus the external client experience. And so as you're, you're then looking at all these options of, you kind of said like there's quasi-independent, there's sort of hybrid supported options with players like Dynasty and Sanctuary. There's the, the, the fully independent model, I guess ultimately is, is what you chose and where you ended out. How did you ultimately choose amongst these? Like what, what led you to the, the fully independent choice and, and how did you decide that over the others? What was the trigger for you? Well, at that time, we, again, we had a pretty good, a good sized team of people that we could allocate, divide and conquer with our numbers and time committed. And there was a cost factor there. I don't know if we were, say, if we were looking at that decision today, I don't know. It went fine. I mean, obviously we're on the other side and we're doing, you know, exceptionally well, I don't know if today, knowing what I see in the market today and the, you know, how these platforms are like Dynasty, for example, if we wouldn't go that route, just because they, that may have helped us get up the curve a little quicker, you know, knowing what we, <laughs> given we don't know what we don't know, but it worked out fine for us the way, the path we chose. And ultimately it was just the fact that we had the firepower to be able to tackle it in, inside our own walls. So what was the biggest challenge or surprise as you were as you were making the transition? Well, I'm going to go to the upside surprise, which was the overwhelmingly supportive response from our clients. 
without question, embraced the fact that we were going to launch our own business, be able to do things that for them that perhaps we weren't able to do before. I mean, the the tidal wave of support was very, <laughs> I mean, it's a scary time, right? So the tidal wave of support we got from our clients was just reinforced our decision and gave us a lot of confidence that this was going to be a successful. Were you worried about the dynamic of you know, whether they would whether they would come or whether they would say like, you know, Margaret wish you the best, but you know, I, I kind of like the the strength and depth of of a firm like Morgan Stanley. I don't I don't know about this hanging your own shingle thing. I don't know that we were worried, but we were sitting on top of a business inside of the wirehouse that was a pretty good machine, right? I mean, it was we our people were comfortable, our clients were comfortable, we were all making good livings. We had built you know, this business over decades, right? So here we are making this giant shift and we're confident that our clients are going to come with us, but you don't really know. So you, on Friday morning at 8 a.m., you're sitting on top of a $10 million business and Friday morning at 9 a.m., you're unemployed. (laughs) So, you know, it doesn't come without some anxiety regardless of how optimistic you are. So worried, no, but anxious, yes. And so how do you how did you break the news to clients when it was when it was time? As you probably have guessed, because of the size of our business, we are pretty meticulous in process because otherwise how do you run a business like this? Um, so we had divided out our client list by person, by priority. We already had air travel arrangements made, but obviously you have to follow protocol and you can't contact them until you are given the all clear by your legal team. So once we were gotten the all clear, we all got on the phones and we started with our, not just our top clients, but I mean, the clients that we really wanted to make sure knew this from us quickly, right? So it it was from, I don't know, let's say 10 a.m. that Friday morning to all over, uh, throughout the weekend, we were calling clients on an ongoing basis. And then the following week, when we needed to travel, we would to go see them in person. In practice, you did, I, I guess, how many, how many claim or were there some who didn't come or, you know, were the, were the ones who stayed behind only the ones that you actually wanted to stay behind? Or did you, did you, did you know, oh, darn, Tom said no. Or you did, did you have some that were surprises that didn't, that didn't come with you on the transition? There were not significant surprises. We had a couple that just, you know, they're like, you know, we're fine where we are and but not many. I mean, we 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 moved over about 97, 98% of our business, so it was largely successful in every way we wanted it to be. So, having this been through this growth process for the business over the the past two decades or so, you know, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? I don't know that's surprising. It's a lot of work. I mean, and like they say, anything that's anything that's great is on the other side of hard, right? So it does take a lot of work. And the I have been fortunate to have a team around, right? I'm in awe of people who are able to build an advisory business as a one or two or three person shop 
because of all the things that you have to ride herd over, right? You I mean you have to do the planning and the business planning and the investment management solutions. I mean, it's just such a there's so much that goes into it. So I stand in awe of anyone listening who <laughs> is in that category because we as we built the team over the years, we knew every year we do business plans and we would see what was ahead of us and how the complexity of the client's lives was becoming more and more so. And so building out the talent and infrastructure to be able to stand on top of that is very arduous, rewarding and uh, in many ways, but it's a, it's a very complex business. And so I guess that's also sort of par- part of the journey for you that it was one thing to decide to be independent at the stage that you did because of the size of the team and infrastructure that you had, but getting there meant being in a large firm environment that had that support and infrastructure to be able to grow the business and the team to be at that stage in the first place. Is that a, a fair characterization? Yes. So what was the what was the low point for you on this journey? You know, I would say that uh, over the many decades of my career, the financial melt- meltdown of 2008-2009 was rough, to say the very least. I don't know that even today we, uh, we all fully comprehend how close we were to going into a financial abyss. And the anxiety, we had a client who called one of my partners Friday afternoon and he said, I want you to print out all my accounts, all the holdings, because I'm not so sure your company's going to exist. Your wirehouse is going to exist on Monday morning. And Because frankly, you're actually at that point now of like, it's not like we can even transfer it out fast enough <laughs> if it's going to blow up. Like we may as well just print all of it. So at least we can commemorate it in the, like in the bankruptcy recovery proceedings. Apparently. And, you know, I think that was the weekend when Bear Stearns went up, you know, Companies did go out of business, and I mean that was a rough, a rough period. In looking back at my career, that was a rough time for our clients, for the industry, for our people. It was, yeah, to call it rough is kind of an understatement. <laughs> and so, how just what was that like when you're living that in you know in the New York wirehouse firm and environment? I mean, were clients asking questions about Morgan in particular? Well, sure. Sure they were. I mean, and to their credit, Morgan Stanley was very forthcoming with information and talking points and, you know, supported us wholly in the process. I mean, uh, they could not have done a better job of keeping us up to speed with what was going on. And, but, you know, I mean, it was just a very scary time. I don't know that we all want to reflect back on it fully because of the post-traumatic stress that we might all have, but it was just a very tenuous time. And I don't know that clients, other than the one, actually thought that the firm was going to go out of business, but, you know, it was, the financial industry was very, in general, was very suspect at the time, just because of all the data that was coming out in that regard. As you look back on this journey over the past several decades of, of building. What do you know now about building advisory firms that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10, 20 years ago is, you know, hey, just a tip. Given what I know now, like here's what you should probably know you're getting into. 
Well, it it sounds kind of you know common sense, but really focus on what you can control. There are so many, particularly these days where information is so free flowing. You know, there's social media, there's headlines. You know, we're all we have the attention spans of gnats sometimes, and it's easy to get distracted by things that you can't control, you can't influence, and at the end of the day, don't impact you. So approaching your life and your business with a focus around what can you do? What can you control? What can you influence? I'm probably not alone in saying there were probably a lot of times I spent, I had looking at your chart, doubts, disappointments, late nights, worrying about things that I couldn't influence, right? They were just subliminal, you know, exterior factors that were set in stone. And what I needed to do was move forward. What was the biggest thing that you got stuck on for a while that you you wish you hadn't gotten stuck on in retrospect? Well, I would say that's a tough question to answer because there's so many things over the years that were distractions, so to speak. But in ge- just speaking in general, through my career, I went through a number of mergers and acquisitions in the banking side of things, and then Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney. And those things are very hard on clients and people. And there's a lot of mental anxiety that goes into that, that at the end of the day, it is what it is, right? You just have to keep moving it forward. You have to stay positive and you just have to do the best you can with the cards that you're dealt. And those were probably the most trying times where external factors seem to be overwhelming when at the end of the day, it was all going to move forward. It was all going to be fine. (laughs) You just had to get to the other side. So what advice would you give newer advisors looking to come in the business today? Well, we, we're very focused on culture, as I know a lot of firms are, cultural fit. I'd say if you're looking to get into the business, understand, first of all, what, do you, what is it you want to accomplish? Is it that you want to serve people? Do you have a heart for service? Do you really want to know people to the depth and breadth it takes to be able to do this work? And then if the answer is yes, find a a firm or a advisor or a, an environment that's really going to support that lines up with your values and your goals and what you will want to accomplish. Because it's it's a very rewarding business. It is very hard work, and you need to be in a positive environment that lines up with what you want to accomplish. I know that sounds very general, but I've seen people very misplaced over the years with who they were working with and what they were trying to accomplish and it just didn't line up. And as a result, one or both or all failed when they could have been successful had they just gone right instead of left. And and I I guess just, can you give me an example or like just for, you know, for people coming in the industry who don't know what the different environments are and what the different things are that they could even be misaligned on, like what kinds of things does someone new coming in the industry need to be watching out for if they don't have any of the contacts aside from after the fact, you'll probably realize that was the wrong environment, which doesn't always help after the fact. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to try to answer this, Michael. Hopefully I do your question justice, but you, we've all seen people in this business with that are successful with very different skill sets, right? You have people who are very, aligned with their 
people people, right? They really have a heart for service. They really want to be able to help people. You have people that are very sales driven, like they see the carrot and they really want to go get new business and find new business, but not so much in serving the clientele after the fact. We've seen people that are very organized and structured who maybe line up in the more of the client service side of things, or you have an, a passion for investment management and the investment acumen. So you need to have, you need to be in the right seat for this to be a career for you, just because of the things we talked about. It's hard work. There's a lot of different moving parts. So I guess when I say find some place that's going to give you the opportunity to be in the seat that best suits you. And I know that's that's probably making it sound very simple because it's not that simple, but with the opportunity in our industry today, you have all of these advisors and people who are looking at kind of the sunset of their career and they need young, talented, driven people to come in and help them. There have, there must be opportunities out there for people who sit in one of those seats to be able to add value to a business and their clients. What comes next for you and and Six Meridian? Well, we're gonna, we're continuing to build out our team here, adding expertise and talent to better serve our clients. So, and again, I think I mentioned we're we're we've brought in a number of next generation professionals to be able to continue our business for as long as our clients will continue to support us. So, we're just working to stay ahead of our clients and what they want from us from that perspective. From my perspective, you know, I'm I'm just very proud of what we've built here and the way that we've been able to do it. It's a great business serving great clients, full of great people. And, you know, hopefully I get to be around for a few more years to watch it continue to thrive and succeed. So when you look at this environment of of trying to hire and expand the team to, I guess you put like, stay ahead of the clients and the ever rising demands from clients. What do you look at as the next, the next thing that you have to be hiring for or doing or delivering to, to stay ahead of them? Like when you say you're adding expertise in town, like where are you adding it in the firm? What do you, what do you feel needs to be higher to, to stay competitive and stay ahead? First, we look at the we're always looking at the capacity to be able to spend the kind of time with clients that we need to. So we continue to look at, you know, adding to our service team and our infrastructure support group. And then from an advisor perspective, we'll continue to look for financial planners, people who want to become financial planners. We're at kind of a precipice, so to speak, where, you know, do we want to partner strategically with third parties and build out somewhat of a family office type of structure? Do we want to look at building that out in-house? You know, kind of some of those things where, you know, our our clients are starting, you know, they're asking questions about how are you going to, you know, do you, do you have bill pay capabilities? Do you have the ability to do taxes in-house? So, I'm not, I don't, we're not, that's kind of where we are. So do we build that structure in-house? Do we partner with a third third party local providers to build that kind of uh, alliance? Those are the kind of the questions that we are ask ourselves every day. Because you're just you're getting more more affluent clients further up market who are asking for things like bill pay and house tax returns all in one kind of shop. Correct. Yeah. So as we as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the 
the word success means means different things to different people. And so as someone who's who's built a an incredibly successful multi-billion dollar advisory firm, how do you define success for yourself at this point? First, there were had a lot of help in that firm. <laughs> so it's always been a team effort all along the way. But my success comes from I get to do work that I enjoy every day with people I really do honestly love. And secondly, one of my biggest goals in my career was to help younger people come into this business and to give them an opportunity to thrive in an environment that's healthy and supportive. And we have definitely built that here. So when I sit here today being, I won't tell you how old I am, but I, the fact that those two things are true today is definitely my definition of success. Well, very cool. I, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're very welcome. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.